Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. It's been a while since we've had our friend Andy Doe on the show. Andy, it's nice to have you back. We're talking to you from an oddly... I'm, I'm looking at you in Skype, and there's this odd geometry of the angles in this room. You're not at home where we usually speak to you, are you? No, I'm uh, speaking to you from a practice room at the Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance, where I teach on Tuesdays. And so uh, I've just I've just finished lectures on uh, the both on the practicality and the economics of recording, and uh, now I'm in a little room with. Uh, quite a nice piano, and um, I'm hoping that nobody comes and practices the bass trombone in the room next door. <laughs> and so apologies to our listeners for the audio quality, which is usually better since Andy records at home on his pro microphone onto his reel-to-reel deck. Well, there's also a nice piano too, right? Oh, that's true. This is nicer than my piano. I think the uh, the piano in the room I normally teach it cost as much as my house. <laughs> That's depressing. So what do you teach your students? Just give us a quick overview. You basically teach them everything but music? Yeah, kind of. It's the stuff that uh, musicians wish they had learned at college when they were spending all of their time practicing and none of their time understanding the business of music. Uh, so we'd learn about uh, how records get made, uh, about contracts, about royalties, about budgets, about different forms of company. Um, so we want to make sure that the students are prepared to become leaders in the field as well as become leading musicians. A, a lot of leading institutions are led ultimately by musicians or former musicians. Right. And so we want to make sure that they have the skills to to take on those leadership roles. And is it not common that this is taught? Is this new? It's relatively rare that... It's relatively new to teach this on a music course, a music performance course at all, uh, but it's extremely rare for a college to make it such a large component of, of the degree. So if you're, whether you're an undergraduate or a postgraduate student here at Trinity Laban, you'll have a, uh, a whole semester long course with, with me on entrepreneurship and music business. My daughter goes to an art school, and they have recently started offering entrepreneurial sort of courses where, you know, artists can learn how to, to manage a, an arts business. So it, would, it makes sense to have for music as well. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. I think there's, there are ways in which it can be problematical. It can shift the responsibility. It can shift too much responsibility onto the student for finding a way to pay back all the money they borrowed for their tuition. But at the same time, we want people to be in a position to start a thing if what they want to do is start a thing. And that's not a substitute for proper funding for the arts. And it's not a substitute for good working conditions for musicians, but it forms a, a part of the picture. And right now, without this, what happens is it's only the very privileged students whose parents run stuff who grow up believing that they're the kind of people who could run a thing. 
<laughs> but this reflects a big change in the music industry, doesn't it? That there is this possibility of recording your music yourself, of making your own label, of managing yourself that wasn't really the case 20 years ago. Yeah, well, I was thinking as you were saying that, that what timeline are you going to put on that? Because, you know, I think LSO Live must be 20 years old now. Um, the idea of... The San Francisco Symphony as well, yeah. they've been doing it for a while. Yeah. But like, that's yeah. only the big orchestras, because what you're doing is you're teaching individual musicians how they might do it either as individuals or in small groups or ensembles. Well, that's true. But, you know, the example that I used in a class this morning was a record that I made 11 years ago. So it's not, it's not that new. It's relatively new. It's being taught. But in the same way... I, I, I think that it probably took more than 10 years between the clarinet being invented and composition students being taught how to orchestrate for it as standard. So, you know, we don't always necessarily move as quickly as as, uh, as some might like, but, but the movement happens. Okay, that's not the topic of our discussion today, but I did want to discuss that briefly because people have heard you on the show and they don't really know what you do, so this gives a little bit more information. Today we want to talk about, well, we originally planned this back in December, and, and I think the main topic was going to be the sort of planned obsolescence in audio equipment, and the catalyst for that was when Sonos announced sometime in November that they were offering users of Sonos equipment a 30% discount to trade in their equipment and buy new stuff. And the problem was that when you did this, Sonos would remotely brick your devices so you couldn't use them. It wasn't that you sent them back to Sonos where they'd be recycled or refurbished, but they would be bricked. And so we planned to do this after the new year. And then, what is it, about 10 days ago, Sonos came out and said, well, you know what? Those old devices, we're going to call them obsolete and we're not going to update them anymore. So basically the topic today is planned obsolescence in audio equipment. How have we gone to a place where you can still use an amplifier from the 1970s? In fact, we've already recorded an episode about vintage audio equipment that will be airing in two weeks' time. But how have we gone from that to a point now where when you buy a speaker, it has to have software, and when the software is not updated, your speaker no longer works? Well, my speakers have cables, and they don't need updating. But uh, it's certainly true that, that what's, what's happened for a lot of consumer electronics, and it is primarily consumer electronics at this point, is that as the cost of putting tiny computers in things has got smaller and it's become easier to, to ship things with updatable software and easier to ship things which have kind of layers of software. They have an operating system, then they have the software that's running on them, and then they have a graphical user interface written on top of that. Uh, all of these layers of software come in your stuff and then they can be updated, but all they need to be updated in order to protect them from the kind of security flaws which are constantly being uncovered in connected devices. And this presents a problem for the manufacturers of those devices because they have to decide for how long they're going to continue supporting them. And they have to consider for how long they are going to maintain compatibility between their new stuff and their old stuff. And it's a combination of these things that have come together in, in what's happened with, with Sonos, where they are telling customers now that if you don't replace your three-year-old products, 
then your entire home network of connected Sonos products is going to stop working. Right. And that's the exception with Sonos. So a, a brief description of how Sonos works. The company's been around for 15 years. It was probably the first whole home audio system, and they used a proprietary mesh networking protocol, which back in, back in 15 years ago, people didn't have fast Wi-Fi. You would get Wi-Fi interference, so this is probably the only way to make sure that the music was synced. Over the years, they shifted to use normal Wi-Fi, which meant you no longer needed a bridge, but it's still a whole home system where every device in the system has to have the same software as every other device. And that's actually their Achilles heel right now, because if they had kept a bridge, they could have software in the bridge that distinguishes old devices from new devices and maybe send sound to all of them. But the older devices might not be able to stream in the same way that the newer devices would. Yeah, so it's kind of an almost analogous technological change happened with Apple in their, in their support for AirPlay. So AirPlay is Apple's proprietary streaming protocol. And uh, when, it was, when it was launched in the early 2000s, I think, uh, it would only work on Apple devices and you could only stream to one device at a time. But over time, they've, they've opened up this protocol so people can make other devices, third parties can make devices to receive AirPlay. And they've also introduced a, a new standard, AirPlay 2, which will allow you to stream to more than one device perfectly in sync, which allows you uh, to stream audio to several rooms at once, or it allows you to send the left channel to one device and the right channel to another device and, uh, and create a, a stereo sound wirelessly to two separate and unconnected wireless speakers. But the way Apple did that meant that it was still possible to continue using the old AirPlay 1 or AirPlay Not 2 devices. So uh, I have, I have uh, devices on my home network which only support the earlier Apple protocol because those devices are now more than 12 years old. But they work. They work perfectly fine because... In updating the, the, the protocol, Apple made a conscious decision. We are going to continue to support almost all of the old stuff. If you have an Airport Express from before 2008, I think this is the right date. If you have an Airport Express that's old enough, then you will no longer be able to get the software to load on your machine to program that. So the uh, airport utility that you run on your Mac can only talk to devices that are a little over a decade old. But that is a very long time to support devices compared with what Sonos has done with, with this change. And I can imagine somebody in Sonos' marketing department sitting there listening to this going, yeah, but you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand. This is a, this is a fundamentally different different change in the technology and it was much more complicated and it was much more difficult and we couldn't possibly make these devices support all of this and and, and frankly that that is a weak and feeble excuse they had a choice they made a choice to do this they looked at what it would cost to support their older version of the technology in parallel maybe with uh, limited features but alongside the newer version of the technology. And they decided either 
this is so woefully insecure and unfixable that that we cannot possibly let people keep doing this and we need to we need to get these products off the market without explaining why or they decided you know what it's just going to cost too much we're going uh, we're going to force an upgrade and people will be all right with that. People will be all right with Apple taking away the headphone socket. Uh, it's going to be a bit of screaming, but ultimately we'll get past this and, and we'll call it courageous. We'll do this thing. Uh, <laughs> and people who spend... God, I'll never forget when Phil Schiller said that on stage, we took the headphone jack out. Courage. That was such an insulting thing that he said. It's an interesting definition of courage, isn't it? <laughs> Well, there's an interesting number that Sonos mentioned when they announced this. The company's been around for 15 years, and they said that 92% of devices that they have made or that they have shipped in 15 years are still in use. Now, you actually announced that people are still using all these devices and you want to kill them off. That's like kicking someone when they're down. Um, David Sachs, who we've had on the show for his book, Re The Revenge of Analog, tweeted when this announcement came out that he had just hardwired a home, a family home, five years ago with Sonos stuff, and now all of it was going to be considered obsolete. That's just 92% of our stuff. We're so proud that people are still using our stuff that we're going to screw them. It's a strange announcement to make, and uh, it is noticeable that when they announced that, they didn't say what percentage of that stuff was about to stop working, uh, what percentage of that stuff was about to need replacing. And if it were the case that 90% of the products that are currently in use were purchased in the last two years and the company's undergoing, undergoing a huge amount of growth, and in order to, to keep up with that and keep abreast of technology, they were going to have to make this make this difficult change and that it made sense to do it now before anybody else invested in the old stuff. There's an argument to be made that this was this was the right time to rip off that band-aid. But they've not given any explanation that is even slightly in that direction. What they've done is said, screw you guys, we're doing this. Is do you suppose there's any relationship to the lawsuit that they are involved in with, uh, with, their, with their IP? With, with, who is it, Amazon? Google. It's Google. Yeah, apparently Google and Amazon had both been in talks with Sonos and got some of their intellectual property and both went on to build speakers using what Sonos says is intellectual property they had developed. But they're only suing Google for now because, of course, Amazon sells their stuff. Yeah, they, what they said was they couldn't afford to sue them both at once, right? Right. But... It would make dealing with Amazon a lot easier if they had a judgment from the Google case. So there's definitely an argument for tackling these two things separately. It's always possible that what they're doing is no longer using a piece of IP that, that is vulnerable to legal challenge. Uh, and it may be that they need to abandon that IP in order to... But if that's the case, if the reason that they're doing it is because they don't... They never had the right to sell you that thing in the first place, then I think customers have a right to be quite cross about that. No, that's not the lawsuit. They're saying that Google infringed on their intellectual property. Yeah. No, I, I understand that. But... If Google's infringed on their intellectual property, that doesn't place any obligation on them 
to stop using the intellectual property they have always asserted is theirs. But if during the course of this they discovered that, that they were using intellectual property that was vulnerable to challenge from some third party, then you can see how their legal department might tell them, look, this is going to be expensive and it's going to be painful and your customers are going to hate you for it, but you need to stop using this and use something else instead. And that would certainly be one explanation for why they would abandon a, a piece of technology that has been in use relatively recently. So the first volley was to try to get people to voluntarily upgrade with a 30% discount, and that was November. Then the Google thing was announced, I think, early January. Then just a little bit later, they announced, well, I guess not enough people voluntarily upgraded at 30%, so now everyone with old stuff has to upgrade. You're right. Sonos equipment was discounted very heavily in the fall before Christmas, as I recall. Well, New equipment was discounted. The, the stuff that I have. So we've talked about Sonos several times. Right. We did an episode about my new Sonos amp. I had bought a Sonos One speaker. I recently bought a second one. A stereo pair of Sonos One speakers sounds much better than a stereo pair of HomePods. So they're in my bedroom. And I have a Sonos Beam in my TV room. But here's what's interesting. The original Sonos customer was this geeky, probably mostly male audience who wanted sound in every room in their house, and they wanted it synchronized. And they liked the geekiness of this, this type of gizmo that they could control. But I think the new Sonos customer, like me, is streaming to a single device at a time, doesn't care about the whole home thing. They want a smart speaker that does Alexa or Google Assistant, which they can get with the Sonos One. I think even the Beam does that. They want an amplifier that they can connect to their TV to get sort of faux surround sound because it doesn't do 5.1. So I think their clientele has shifted from the early whole home geek to the more modern person who's using it like me, using one device at a time. Yeah, and that would account for different pressures on their sales strategy. It would account for changes in their marketing. It would not account for them remotely breaking devices or cutting off support for relatively recently purchased products. And, and ultimately, we have to recognize that this is a choice that they have made, and they've made it because they've decided that the alternative is is worse either that there's some technological reason why uh if they, they need to put a more expensive computer in it to support multiple protocols or there's a kind of legal ip reason that uh they've just figured out or just discovered or it has in some way become clear that they no longer have the rights maybe they never had the rights to use some piece of technology that they've been using this whole time. Maybe there's some license that's going to expire and they've decided that they, they can't afford to or don't want to renew it. Um, this is a choice that they're making and it reflects the, the extent to which they value the bond of trust with their customers. And that's something that we really need to consider when we buy technological devices something that we really need to consider when we're buying connected devices because you're only buying the, the terminal through which this, this service is accessed and you're trusting the company to continue to support it, to ensure that it remains safe, to ensure that it remains secure. You're trusting the person who sold you this thing to 
not stop it working two years after you bought it. And when that becomes your brand, you're in serious trouble. I think um, over the past few months, maybe even the past year or so, I've, and I think Kirk would agree with me, we've developed a certain respect for Sonos. Um, they really have, I think, done a better job than a lot of other companies with, with their wireless speaker system. And they seem to be above board. And I'm, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not trying to screw customers. That they are trying to find the easiest way out of a difficult situation, whatever that happens to be. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, just like I, I, I trust Apple to make sure that their equipment is going to work. I think I'm willing to, to allow Sonos a little space here. Well, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not morally condemning anyone for what they've done here. This is, this is a business decision. Right. Um, and it was either an incredibly difficult decision where they really felt backed into a corner and they tried a number of a number of things to soften the impact of this before they did it, knowing that it was virtually unavoidable. Or it's an incredibly stupid thing to do. If you didn't need to do this, if you didn't feel like somebody had you in a headlock, then then nobody would be dumb enough to do this because because it really does affect the the bond of trust with your customers and when we're talking about connected speakers these are devices that live in your home and you know we, we think about connected speakers as as, as uh, you know collecting data about us they know what we're listening to sometimes they have microphones in them sometimes we're trusting the people who run these things to, to not be listening to what we're up to or not be spying on when we're home and on when we're depressed and on when we've listened to the same Joni Mitchell song 75 times in a row. Um, and, you know, when, when that happens and then you start seeing ads for gallon-sized tubs of Haagen-Dazs, you start to suspect that your personal data is, is, is being stolen. We need to be able to trust the companies that provide connected devices for our homes and we can only judge them on their behavior. Where I think there is a tremendous failing uh, is not necessarily at, at Sonos HQ, um, but in the way that connected devices are covered in the press. Um, you know, how often do you see a review for a cell phone that talks about how many pixels the camera has, but doesn't address the glaring security flaws in one platform over another. How often do you see the, the iPhone and, and Android compared in terms of screen resolution and battery life, rather than one of these phones will let any maniac on the internet install bullshit on your phone and steal your stuff? Well, you know, only one of these phones places no controls over what data Facebook is allowed to collect through their app. Yeah, it's something, as you know, I also do a security podcast. It's something that is discussed a lot, but in the general tech press and in the sort of mainstream news press that talks about these devices, they don't generally mention these things. Whether it's a phone, whether it's a doorbell, whether it's um, a security camera, for instance, this is the kind of thing that... 
I think if you're really into the tech, you know about it. If you're not, you don't know enough and you don't want to say anything. If you're a journalist just doing lifestyle articles about technology, it's, it's something that people are well aware of. I just saw an article this morning from the EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation, I think they're called, about the software that's used for ring doorbells and the number of trackers that they have. And there was another one about a free antivirus company, Avast, and how they've been selling data about users for years. So, yeah, this is a problem that, uh, you know, I deal with professionally in my work, but that most people don't know about. I, I just do want to come back to one more thing about Sonos, though. The anger that this has inspired in long-term customers is, I wouldn't say surprising, but it's really quite acute on Sonos's forum on a Facebook group for Sonos that I've seen. But then again, that makes me think if Sonos's clientele is shifting to the single speaker use or two or three speakers rather than the whole home thing, maybe they just don't even care about that market anymore. Maybe those people are just pains for them as they shift into a new strategy. That may be the case, though. Um uh, to, to return to what, what I teach here at Trinity for a moment, in, in, uh, in, in the second lesson of my course on entrepreneurship, we talk about developing a brand and the journey somebody goes through from first uh, encountering a brand and becoming aware of it through selecting that brand, through uh, becoming loyal to that brand, through to becoming an evangelist for that brand. Any marketing professional is is working hard to move people through those stages towards brand advocacy so that they go from not just being aware of it to going out and telling all of their friends about it. And the people that Sonos has pissed off the most by doing this are the ones who are out there telling all their friends, I have my whole house wired like this. It's great. You should do it too. Those are, those are their brand ambassadors, and those are the people who are upset about it. And it might be a relatively small group of people, but they're a disproportionately valuable group of people to the, the word-of-mouth advertising of this brand. And I've seen more talk online in the last couple of weeks hating on Sonos by those people, by their customers, than I've ever seen talking about how great their stuff is. Yeah. And that's <laughs> going to be alarming for their marketing team. Yeah. So when I bought these Sonos devices in recent years, the reason why I did buy them is because they do support AirPlay 2. That, to me, was the deal breaker because I use Apple devices and I didn't want to depend on Sonos's app because if you load the Sonos app on your Mac and you have a large music library, it cannot read all of your files. We're in 2020. My iMac has about 70,000 tracks in the iTunes library. If I point the Sonos app to it, it reads the artist folders alphabetically. It gets as far as Pink Floyd. It can't read anything after that. It can't play anything by the Rolling Stones, for example. This is 2020, and it can't support large libraries. Now, it's entirely possible that this is because the older devices don't have enough memory for whatever database is needed, and this is something they're trying to fix. But they should have fixed this a long time ago. It's just, it's inconscionable that this is, the Sonos user is a music geek, and it's really surprising that they can't do that. It may have taken an enormous programming effort to, to do that, and it may be that it's something that they should have been addressing a long time ago instead of prioritizing growth. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not on their engineering team. I'm not privy to those secrets. So I, I do know uh, something that may be uh, 
may be analogous to this. Is, is, do you remember when Apple switched from uh, using uh, uh, the Motorola chips to using... Yeah, PowerPC to Intel. Yeah, so w when Apple went from PowerPC to Intel, this required a major change in, in their software. And that would have been an incredibly difficult move to make. They would have felt like they were completely backed into the corner, had it not been for the fact that when they wrote OS X from the very first version, they wrote a version of OS X for uh, PowerPC, and they had a version for Intel, and the secret Intel version was maintained and updated in parallel with all of the versions of OS X, which meant that Apple could go into their negotiations with Motorola, they could go into their negotiations with Intel, knowing that they actually had a choice. And when they did make the change, they shipped it with an emulator so that for years you could still run older apps that were written for the, for the PowerPC platform. Do you suppose there's any way that Sonos can, can develop some kind of device that will enable a user to use their old gear? It's, it's too late. And this is the thing. The reason Apple were able to do that is because they did it from the outset. They gave themselves that option. The point that Sonos have got to now, it's, it's too much work. It would take too long. It may be impossible for them to, to do that. And this is, this is only speculation, but it may account for them charging so... Uh, so unceremoniously into what has been something of a PR disaster for them. Okay, this has been really interesting, Andy. I just got a notification that I have to download a firmware update for the fan in my office. So I think we're going to have to call it an episode. I, I laugh, but I, I have more and more devices that require firmware updates, whether it's light bulbs or fans or cameras, uh, audio devices. It, it, there is this obsolescence that we're going toward at breakneck speed now. It's, it's a bit worrisome for the future. Well, uh, this, is, this is the reason why I do my best to minimize the number of connected devices in my home. And when purchasing one, look at the way it works and consider, does this need to be connected to the internet in order for it to fulfill its main function? Because if your thermostat can't work without somebody else's server, then you haven't really bought a thermostat at all. You've bought a device that lets somebody else control the temperature in your home. And uh, you're entirely dependent on them for your heating instead of on you turning a knob on the wall. So I think it's, it's really important at this point for us to just give a shout out to uh, Internet of Shit, which has the, uh, has the news and the truth on uh, all of these issues today. They uh, are far wiser than us on uh, all of these matters. Okay, thanks, Andy. It was great to talk to you. We'll see you again soon. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, here we go. We've got our next tracks for this week. Kirk, you're not picking a piece of music? No, I'm not. I'm actually picking a movie this week. And it's funny because before we started recording, we were talking about how you got your first Beatles records when your neighbor threw them out. This would have been 1966 in the Burn Your Beatles Records movement, wasn't it? The movie that I want to talk about is a movie where the Beatles never existed. It's called Yesterday. It's directed by Danny Boyle, written by Richard Curtis. There's this guy who's a sort of mediocre singer playing in bars in England, and he's going along, and he's not doing good, and he goes to a festival, and he says, I'm going to quit my career. So on the way home, he's on a bicycle, and all of a sudden, the power goes out, and he gets hit by a bus. The power goes out all around the world. 
so he's in the hospital and he gets out and he meets his friends and they give him a guitar. And so they say, play a song. So he goes and plays a song. He plays Yesterday for them. And they're all looking at him like, what is this song? When did you write this? <laughs> it's just by the Beatles. Who? <laughs> so basically what happened is this like alternate timeline when the Beatles didn't exist. As he goes home and he's Googling, it's like Beatles comes up with an insect. John, Paul, George, and Ringo doesn't find anything. <laughs> so the, the premise is really interesting. You see what's happening. He remembers all these Beatles songs. He writes them down. He becomes a musician, record and touring and all this. And unfortunately, the ending's a bit sort of, you expected the ending to be like this and it was there's a love interest, which is Lily James, who was his friend, who had been his best friend for a long time and drove him to gigs and all that. And Kate McKinnon is in it. Ed Sheeran's in it, by the way. He's So he heard a song on a local TV thing and he wants him to open for him and that leads to a recording contract. And it's really cute because you just keep having these Beatles songs coming in all the time. And it has that nostalgia of the Beatles. Again, the ending's not great, but it's a fun movie if you like the Beatles and if you can imagine a world where the Beatles didn't exist. And some interesting other things didn't exist as well. Every once in a while, he would mention something. Like, he said he, he would love to smoke a cigarette. He wished he smoked cigarettes, and someone says, well, what's a cigarette? So, anyway, it's called Yesterday, and it's available from all good movie streaming services, and you can buy a piece of plastic with the film on it as well, I think. That's funny. I like the idea of alternative universes. And by the way, there's a lot of other stuff that's alternative in here. But we just don't have time to get to it in this movie. Um, that's good. Um, you know, I, I was uh, thinking about this the other day. There's not a lot of funny music. I, I seem to remember in the 70s, there was a lot of funny music around. And the funny music that I'm thinking of was created in the late 70s when New Wave was recording. Any, anybody that had a New Wave sound got a, a record deal. And a lot of... Uh, a lot of bands were funny back then. And I'm thinking, especially a lot of bands from Boston. There was Human Sexual Response that did I Want to Be Jackie Onassis. There were The Fools. There was Willie Loco Alexander. And then all around the same time, there was also The Cramps. And I would even include bands like The Ramones and The Misfits. And a lot of New York bands were kind of funny. Humorous. They would write funny songs. B-52s, I would think, would even be considered a funny band. Um, Devo. Devo, a funny band. The Rosillos um, are a funny band. They were a Scottish new wave punk band. That um, Their first album, I think their only album, is actually called Can't Stand the Rosillos. And they were, a, they were part of the crew in the 70s that I listened to. In college radio, we played a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, I know that... I know that a lot of people don't think of the Ramones as being funny, but I do because they all have the same last name. They all wear the same kind of clothes. They all have the, 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 the stupid Beatles haircuts that are overgrown. You know, that was a joke. Um, a, lot of, a lot of music back then was really funny. And this Rosillo's album, they, they kind of were like the misfits in a way. They did like sci-fi, silly songs and... Well, I, I actually don't remember, this, which is why I'm going to listen to Can't Stand the Rosillos. The other funny thing I remember about the Rosillos is when they broke up, the, a couple of members of the band reformed as the Ravillos. And that was a moment of celebration for a lot of Rosillos fans. I remember that in college, in, uh, in 1980 or so, when the Ravillos came out, that formerly the Rosillos. 
But um, they're, they're a fun little band, and it's really kind of interesting why... I mean, I know a lot of rap music will have humorous lyrics in it, but it it doesn't seem to be anybody's raison d'etre to be a funny band anymore. And um, I, I'm, I'd like to see a few more come back. So I'm going to give this a listen to. A listen. The Rizillos. Can't stand the Rizillos is my next track. This was episode number 168 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we hope you do. We'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, spread the word amongst your friends and family. We'd appreciate it. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.